You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Real Vision Daily Briefing, live without a net, once again with Ed Harrison. Welcome back, Ed. Yes, thank you, Ash. Good to talk to you. Good to talk to you as well. Ed, we were talking off camera a little bit about oil, about price action, of course, about the Fed meeting coming up later this week. What are you looking at? How are you thinking about these markets right now? Yeah, I'm thinking about them as pretty slow. I mean, the price action today was relatively weak across different markets uh, because people are basically waiting for the Fed. You know, they're, they're, we've digested a lot of data uh, in terms of inflation, first and foremost, but also in terms of uh, jobs, in terms of uh, other things like oil. And people are wanting to see what the Fed's going to say before they make any sort of drastic move. So when you look at the indices, they weren't uh, very changed today. The things that I would note beyond the uh, major indices are three things. One, we got the 10-year up to 149.4. We got uh, WTI up to a, you know the highest it's been in three years at 71.11. That's where it's trading now. Brent's at 73.04. And then the third thing is, is I got tons of pings for 52-week highs today. So even though it was sort of a mixed day, uh, you know, a lot of stocks hit a 52-week high today. Yeah. Ed, you were talking about inflation. Uh, I know particularly one of the things that's been on your mind, on my mind, uh, is the uh, raw materials inflation. Uh, obviously, the job picture uh, as we come out of this recession. So set the table for us a little bit, big picture, how you're thinking about those two key parameters as we head into Fed Day. So I think that uh, there are two or three things. Uh, one is the uh, inflation numbers themselves and how, uh, you know, by the way, before I get into this, let me just say, because it just occurred to me, I was about to use the magic word. While we're speaking, uh, every single time that you hear the word substantial progress or the word transitory, uh, that's, those are the two drinking words for, the, for today. If That is if you're having some beers or cocktails or whatever. So. Just, just as an aside. That's so from Tom. I was about to comments, right? That's right. From Tom, this Tom, is for Tom. Tom, Tom saying, how many times are we going to hear those words? Just for you, Tom. Tom, we're going to say them as much as possible. <laughs> so, um, the 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 question in terms of inflation, first and foremost, is is it transitory or not? Uh, that is the inflation that we're seeing now. Uh, it, is it going to subside in one way, shape, or form? The second thing that people are talking about is inflation expectations, i.e., based upon the inflation that we have now and into the future, what do people think, what do they believe is going to happen towards the future? And that's going to have an impact on uh, bond yields. And then finally, uh, it's what the Fed is going to do. What's the Fed's reaction function? Has it changed uh, demonstrably? I'll give you an example that the Fed said uh, in the last uh, bull cycle 
they said we're not raising interest rates uh, until we get to two percent and above because two percent is actually not a, a a ceiling it's a it's a target that means that we can we can let the economy run a little bit hot a little bit cold it doesn't make a difference but lo and behold they started to raise interest rates even before they got to their two percent target so the fed said one thing and they did another so it's not clear if the fed has changed its tune uh, and what the Fed will do at the second half of the year if inflation prints are high. So those are the three things that people are thinking about, the transitory or the non-transitory nature of the, uh, of the inflation, the expectations based upon that, and then the Fed's reaction function. Yeah, that's a very good point. Uh, let me just give a little bit of context, a little bit of color around this phrase, substantial progress, uh, because sometimes, uh, you know, you and I, we love this stuff. Many of our viewers love this stuff. But it gets a little bit like uh, interpreting the, uh, the uh, pronouncements from the Oracle at Delphi. Uh, and the context here, the backstory that Tom Tom was alluding to, uh, is that uh, San Francisco Federal Reserve Bank President Mary Daly uh, said, and let me see if I can find the quote, Effectively, she said uh, that it's not just the Fed must not just expect substantial progress; they must see substantial progress. So it really is this like this weird gaming of language. And I think if we were trying to like do the breakdown here, the fifty thousand foot overview, basically what 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 the San Francisco uh, Federal Reserve Bank president is signaling is uh, that there really needs to be very clear, uh, very clear data that shows the economy heating up before the Fed is going to act. Basically what they're saying, at least in my interpretation, and I'm very curious uh, to hear yours, Ed, because you watch this much closer than I do. What they're basically saying is, don't expect us to move on rates until we really have to move on rates. Yeah, I, I mean, my interpretation, the interesting bit is, is what I'm thinking about, is I'm thinking about the zero lower bound. And uh, I look at what you're talking about as a communication strategy. It's sort of forward guidance. So if if we weren't at the zero lower bound, we wouldn't be having the conversations like this that, that we're having. Uh, uh, for instance, let's say, let's imagine that, you know, uh, the interest rate, the base rate is at 7%. If the base rate were at 7%, then this Fed uh, official that you're talking about would say that, uh, we haven't made substantial progress, so we're going to cut rates to six percent, or you know, over time, and we might even go to five percent. So when they say that we're not going to raise interest rates, we're going to keep on doing quantitative easing, uh, large-scale asset purchases. What they're basically telling you is that uh, we're not impotent. We haven't run out of bullets. There are things that we can do in order to impact the economy. But really, what you should be thinking is is actually they've run out of bullets, that they, they can no longer use uh, interest rate policy, so they're using this, this forward guidance policy. They're completely dependent on forward guidance. Yeah, you know, it's kind of interesting. You, you sort of say, like, when someone says, we haven't run out of bullets yet, is the implication <laughs> maybe they're running out of bullets. It's kind of like, uh, you know, if a bank uh, comes out with a statement that says we're not having problems with short-term liquidity. <laughs> That's exactly the thing that you worry about. Exactly. So I think that w w what's telling here is is, is that the Fed is trying to 
uh, you know, make it so that like the Wizard and the Wizard of Oz, that, you know, uh, people think that there's some magic. It's not just hocus pocus. It's real magic. Uh, but really, you do have to wonder uh, how how much oomph the, the Fed can give uh, to the economy. So, uh, you know, the real question is going forward with inflation, even though they say that, that they're going to uh, stay the course, is whether or not they move in the opposite direction. I, j just to reiterate, I mean, they should be, based upon the language that Fed officials are using, reducing interest rates right now. The real question that other people are saying is, is when you look at the data, the inflation data, in the past, the Fed would be moving in the opposite direction. So when do they make that abrupt shift from moving down to moving up? Yeah. The other thing that you said that was really interesting that I wanted to come back to uh, was uh, it's a target, not a floor. It reminds me of, uh, of Goodhart's law. When a measure becomes a target, it ceases to be a good measure. Tell us a little bit about what you mean by that statement. So there was the whole debate uh, in the uh, the previous decade about whether or not the Fed uh, was too hawkish. And the debate stemmed around this 2% inflation target. And a lot of people were saying, you know, really the, the Fed's paradigm is that we're never going to allow uh, uh, inflation to go over 2%. As soon as it hits 2% and then we see it at 2.1%, 2.2%, we're going to step on the, the brakes we're going to raise interest rates by a quarter percent over and over again until it goes back down below 2%. So effectively, 2% would have been a ceiling under that particular regime. But the Fed was trying to convince people that, no, it's not a ceiling. Actually, uh, it's a target, which means that in, in, in times when inflation is below 2%, we're fine with that as long as there are other times when it's above 2% and it all averages out over the longer term. This 2% is sort of a long-term target that we have, and we're going to fluctuate around that number. When push came to shove, however, the Fed started raising interest rates before it met its target, which meant effectively the 2% number was a ceiling. Yeah, and a whole lot of what we're doing right now, and I think what needs to be done is parsing all of this Delphic language uh, around uh, around Fed speak. Another way of saying that uh, target not a, not a ceiling uh, is that it, the asymmetric framing, right? When you hear Fed officials uh, or commentators who watch Fed officials talking about how there's going to be asymmetric targeting, uh, meaning precisely what you just said, if it if the long term uh, rate is on average 2% and it's been substantially below the 2% target for a long period of time. The flip side is asymmetric. It runs hot to the upside in order to attain uh, a balanced level. And this is just, by the way, we're not endorsing either of these positions. We're just trying to describe what the thinking is, what the language means, and why there's so much, frankly, uh, you know, opacity around trying to understand it. And, you know, again, the reason that this exists, the reason that there is this language and, uh, you know, we're parsing these things is because we, we've hit the zero lower bound. Right. I mean, at the end of the day, the reason uh, that the Fed uh, went to liftoff before it hit the 2% target was because they wanted to have 
the ability to cut rates when uh, the, the, the economy uh, went into the opposite direction. It, it, it's somewhat perverse, but you know, raise the interest rate level as high as you can before uh, the economy stalls without causing the, the economy to stall so that when it does stall, you are able to cut rates because cutting yeah. rates is preferable to uh, you know, any sort of, of, of jawboning which is what the Fed's doing now. Yeah. And also the flip side of that, the balance sheet expansion. Exactly. So I think that's where we are, you know, in terms of the Fed. Uh, I think that uh, it's just going to be interesting to see uh, what they say. Obviously, they're going to probably uh, uh, go the, the course. They're going to continue. What I'm interested to see is the mix between uh, Treasury Securities and MBS, what they say about that mix. Because at present, we're talking $80 billion uh, of QE in terms of Treasury Securities, $40 billion of mortgage-backed securities, MBS. And we know that the mortgage market had been red hot. It's cooled off somewhat recently. Are they thinking about uh, changing that mix down the line, or are they just going to continue with that same mix? It might be interesting if they make any sort of hint that if they were to reduce accommodation, the first thing they would do is change the mix of quantitative easing before they actually reduce the level. Explain, if you would, the significance of that balance between USTs and MBS. So uh, in the great financial crisis, MBS, that was a locus of, of, of problems. And so the Fed... Uh, when they started quantitative easing, they were actually doing it in order to provide liquidity to the market. We don't have that problem now with mortgage-backed securities, but the Fed is still using the mortgage-backed security market in order to do its quantitative easing program. But at the same time, uh, you, you have a mortgage market, a housing market, which is really robust in the United States. And so in terms of the mix of, on the one hand, treasury bills or any sorts of treasuries, buying those versus, on the other hand, buying mortgage-backed securities, really, uh, you're sending a signal that you're supporting both markets. One market is very hot. The other one, really, maybe this is the one that we should be supporting more. So I think that there's been a, some talk about that, and it's not clear what the Fed's going to do, when they're going to do it. But at some point, there's a great possibility that any sort of tapering would happen uh, with the mortgage-backed securities market. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Yeah. I'm just looking here. I'm smiling because I, as I'm scrolling through the comments, I, I've seen one come up that says, I'm starting to think Shiba Coin makes more sense than the Fed. <laughs> Not a good sign. I mean, they're between a rock and a hard place. I mean, this is one of the reasons that people are, are turning to fiscal policy because right. you, once you reach the zero lower bound, Really, it's small beer, what you can do. 
uh, at the margin, jawboning the market, giving forward guidance, trying to steepen or flatten the yield curve, all these kinds of things. It's really not going to move the needle. Uh, that's why we see this massive deficit spending, not just in the United States, but in other countries. And so I think that's uh, that's where we are. And ultimately, that's one of the reasons that people are worried about inflation. They're worried about inflation because, not because of the Fed, but rather because of fiscal policy. And ultimately, the Fed is there to offset that, potentially. That's been their role in the past. The question is, is this the role that they're going to play in the future? And if not now, when would they shift, if in the future, to the role of the offset to the fiscal uh, stimulus? Yeah. And one of the many reasons I enjoy doing these shows with you uh, is that you bring it back to the big picture issues. Uh, you can bring in and pull in the daily news cycle. But to get the big picture, sometimes it's very easy when we're talking about this kinds of things uh, for people to not be able to see the forest for the trees. But the point that you're making here, I think, is such an important one. This is all about what happens when you're stuck at the zero lower bound and when you're stuck at the zero lower bound for a very long period of time. Other than that one little blip uh, up prior to COVID, we have been here since the great financial crisis by and large. And now we're starting to see some of the risks, some of the instabilities, uh, some of the weird quirks that come in the system when you rely too much for too long on zero rates. Yeah. And uh, again, you know, bonds, I'm looking at them now, uh, 10 year U.S. 10 years at 149.9. That's relatively low uh, by historical standards. Uh, and that is a uh, that's telling you that uh, with all the stimulus that we've provided to the market, uh, the, the bond market's not screaming, uh, you know, we're off to the races. It's quite the opposite. And so it is somewhat of a precarious situation. Uh, and it'll be interesting to see how the Fed makes that out. You know, Ash, before we came on, you were talking to me. We were looking at the WTI chart and trying to figure out when was the last time oil was as high as it is today. I mean, that's where the inflation has been is in energy prices. If you look at crude oil, over, say, the last five years, look at a chart. There's only one period in that time that uh, crude has been as high as it is now, and that was in uh, 2018, in June through um, through September of 2018. It, it got up to $73, $74 a barrel. You have to go all the way back to the shale uh, revolution, uh, before the shale revolution, but when oil was over this level. So, I mean, these are the highest levels that we've had in, in crude, pretty much except the, that brief period in 2018 for a good seven years, Ash. Yeah, absolutely spot on in terms of energy. Uh, and I would add one uh, other point to that, which is uh, also raw materials. Look at the copper chart. Man, I'm looking right now at COMEX copper prices back to uh, 1971 on the Macro Trends website. Uh, all-time high, ATH, as the uh, crypto guys say, $4 and uh, looks like uh, 75 cents. This is going back before I was born. <laughs> yeah, that is amazing. So um, what are we to make of that? Uh, again, that's the, 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 the uh, $64,000 question, w whether it's transitory or not. We just don't know at this particular juncture. And 
And then what's the Fed's reaction function to that? The, of the three things that I talked about in the beginning in terms of is it transitory or not? We don't know. We're not going to find out after the Fed talks. In terms of the Fed, we will find out more about the reaction function. I'm much more interested in MBS than anything else at this point. And then the third thing is it does seem like inflation expectations have become subdued. And to me, that's a sign of weakness. It's a, you have to go to the politics, to the fiscal policy, to the uh, global policy to understand why it might be that inflation expectations have come down. Because when you look at the ability to get legislation through to continue deficit spending on the fiscal level in the United States at a minimum, uh, it doesn't look as good. And that means uh, you know less growth, and that's more bullish for bonds. Uh, we had the G7 over the weekend, and that didn't seem like it was a huge breakthrough. There was a lot of talk at the margin about uh, getting tough on China, but by and large, there was nothing there from a coordinated perspective that made you think, okay, we're off to the races. They're doing something special. So I think that uh, bond markets are signaling that really we've gotten this this lift, this reopening lift, but they, they need to see more to think that this is uh, something that has legs over the longer term. Yeah. Uh, Ed, we have got a massive backlog of questions building up. So let's jump right in uh, because I'm afraid we're not going to get to answer all of them if we don't get in quickly. Uh, here's one that comes to us once again, Prius Omega. Uh, and the question is, if anyone's thinking that inflation is transitory, is the expectation that prices then deflate? If not, and most people are paycheck to paycheck still, isn't transitory inflation still a big problem? So really two questions there uh, from Prius Omega, both of which are to topics that you and I uh, have discussed extensively. The first is inflation versus deflation. And the second is, won't transitory inflation still cause real pain uh, in the lives of American workers? Yeah, so taking the first, uh, I think uh, there are two parts to the first. That is asset price inflation, and then especially debt-backed uh, asset price inflation, and then uh, you know non-asset uh, price inflation, so CPI. Um, I think if you have deflation of, uh, of goods and services, that's one thing. But if you have deflation of asset prices, for instance, we've had a lot of... Uh, house price inflation, then that's a problematic, especially to the degree that uh, that's a levered asset. So really, uh, deflation could be negative in this scenario, but no one's necessarily saying that you're going to get deflation. It could be that you just have a one-time step change up to a certain level, and then, uh, and, and then you know, that's it. So it's transitory inflation because it went up and then uh, it stayed at that level and went up you know, at the 2% level that the Fed wants it to go up going forward. Where the, the, the rubber hits the road in terms of transitory being uh, pernicious is when things happen over the short to medium term that you can't recover from that really move the needle so far that... Uh, you know, it really is a shock to the system. You know, house prices going up 30, 40%, that could be a shock to the system. Uh, 
oil going to $100 a barrel? That could be a shock to the system. That could be the thing that tips us over, you know, reduces the amount of discretionary spending that people have. And as a result of that, uh, the, the economy slows down. So even if it's temporary, even if it's transitory, it could be negative for the economy. Yeah. Let me follow up with a question of my own uh, on Prius Omega's question, which is, Ed, how do you look at inflation? How do you actually measure it? I mean, if someone's new to this space, they say CPI, PPI, PCE, all these different metrics of inflation. And then in addition to that, we see those numbers decoupling from some broader macro trends, uh, i.e., the spread uh, between core uh, and headline with energy prices being a substantial driver. And of course, if you look at it in the bigger term picture, you will see obviously these massive spikes uh, in, in the cost of education and in healthcare. So how do you look at it? How do you measure it on a day-to-day -day basis? And what do you look for as a bellwether? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. I, I wish I had the, the, the answer, especially now, when there's so many cross currents that are happening. I mean, the one thing I can say is, is that your inflation is different than my, my inflation. My inflation is different than my mother's inflation. Uh, you know, she uses doctors a lot more often, uses the healthcare system more often. So healthcare inflation is more important for her. You know, my, I have a son who's in school. Uh, so education potentially is more important for me. Some people drive, uh, you know, so every individual uh, has a different measure of inflation for them uh, as an individual. But in terms of where we are and thinking about whether or not this is a temporary phase, there are lots of different measures. There's the trim mean inflation in order to take a look at inflation only here. You can cut out uh, certain things like uh, you know food and energy, which are very variable, and look at the core measure. Or you can take all the things that are going up ridiculous amounts uh, and cut them out and see what the underlying trend is. But that's what people are really trying to do. What they're trying to say is when you take away the things that are fluctuating in ways that are meaningless, the noise, what's the underlying trend underneath and how long lasting is that trend? And from what I can tell for the average consumer, the trend is towards more higher prices uh, and a uh, elevation of prices that we haven't seen in quite some time. So definitely over 2% for core and for many other measures. There are one or two, like trimmed mean, I believe, which are, are, are benign, but uh, m this is why people are worried. Ed, you know why my inflation is so brutal? Because, well, I'm, a, because I'm a New York City bachelor who works like 14 hours a day. So like, an incredibly disgusting percentage of my uh, paycheck goes to Seamless Web, uh, to uh, Postmates, to Grubhub, right? Because it's all the food price inflation that we're seeing. And one of the things that we're seeing is even within food price inflation, I don't have the chart in front of me, but I was reading about this uh, last week, I believe, is that within food price inflation, there is a bifurcation, another drinking term for us. There's this bifurcation between prepared foods, which is basically what I consume, that's restaurants and delivery services, uh, and groceries that are, uh, you know, at what you would see at your local supermarket. So again, your inflation and my inflation, very different. Uh, and I'm getting whacked. Zero <laughs> question. You know, uh, I'm looking at trimmed mean as you, as you say that. And uh, this is a, I, I believe it's a Dallas number uh, or uh, Federal Reserve yeah. Bank of Dallas. There's nothing happening there. 
uh, you know, it, it's up and down. There's no discernible price signal. So again, uh, w w we're in unprecedented waters in terms of uh, the pandemic and coming back from it. Nothing that's happening in the data that we've seen so far is giving us a clear indication of what to expect going forward. So it still is very much up in the air as to whether uh, this is for uh, our, our friend who was talking about the drinking games. It's transitory or not. There, there's another drink for you there. What do they do? How do they calculate the trimmed mean? It's basically they take PCE and then they like they whack it up into quartiles or quintiles and they slice off the top and bottom and then take a, a moving average of that trim. Exactly. I, I believe that's exactly how it is. Uh, it's a proxy for true core uh, PCE inflation. Right. By the way, I think we literally have the only show rolling right now where people are just like looking at charts. Right. We actually just <laughs> like, I don't know. Let's look it up. Okay, so here we go. Uh, here's a question uh, that comes to us from uh, Louis G. Uh, my question for the panel, for a younger investor, is there any point in holding bonds in a portfolio? Is the 60-40 portfolio dead, Ed? You know, um, I don't think it is. I mean, as we can see, uh, there's massive convexity. Uh, you know, the 10-year in the U.S. is still yielding 70 basis points more than the UK, so you can definitely uh, get uh, some returns there. And then, of course, you know you have uh, uh, high yield bonds, which uh, are yielding four percent. I wouldn't necessarily call that high yield, but there's certainly um, some benefit from uh, having that in your portfolio. Interestingly, I I, I would uh, point out that Martin Wolf he did something on defined benefit and defined contribution plans over at the uh, Financial Times earlier today or on Sunday, and he was talking about uh, UK pension schemes and how overly bond-heavy they are and why they've underperformed as a result of that. So that's something to check out if you're interested in that. But uh, to your basic question, I would say, you know, 60, 40 is dead, but bonds still have a, a place in everyone's portfolio. So let me uh, play devil's advocate here and throw this pitch out to you and you tell me what you think. So what about the argument that says, look, this inverse relationship between U.S. Uh, equity markets uh, and the bond market is something that has held for decades and decades now, but there's no guarantee that it continues to hold in the future. One time when it broke down, obviously, notably, was in the 1970s with stagflation, that we may be with uh, you know, unconventional monetary policy setting ourselves up potentially, just potentially, uh, for a time where that correlation doesn't hold and you don't get the protection uh, when we're at or near the zero bound uh, and that uh, rates are just, you know, so low across the curve. You know, I, th I think uh, when we look within the cycle versus uh, over the cycle or the, over the cycles uh, multiple, it's interesting to look at that because, you know, uh, at, at a cyclical moment, at, at the cyclical trough, bonds are doing well where stocks are not and so there's that offset but right. over the the multiple cycles albert edwards uh from uh, uh SockGen, he will tell you that actually bonds have outperformed stocks because we've come down uh so far from you know double digit levels of of interest rates and that if you held a bond only portfolio or 30-year bond portfolio you would have made out as well and better than if you had 
uh, held stocks. So they are they have actually been moving in concert. It's actually you could say a causality that you know because the discount rates have been coming down, it's given an extra boost to uh, the stock market, and so they've been moving in concert across uh, different business cycles as a result of that. So again, I'll just do one more devil's advocate question. So that's the that's the analysis. But if you look back uh, on that chart long enough, you look back to whenever we hit that peak uh, around whatever it was, uh, 15, uh, some, some odd, close to 16%, I think in 1981. And you can watch that ski slope, just ride it down, uh, basically, uh, for that 40-year time uh, frame to the present. Um, I guess the devil's advocate question is, uh, there's no way that we're going to see another 40 years of rate declines of that magnitude because it's simply nowhere to go unless we wind up. Right. Before, you know. Well, we'll see once the, the Chinese get in there with their, uh, you know, um, their central bank digital currency. Maybe they'll use that to have the deeply negative interest rates that people like Ken Rogoff mm -hmm. talk about, you know, instead of having, you know, minus one percent like the Germans have had. They can go to minus seven or minus ten percent, so you can therefore benefit. Who knows what what these guys will come up with? I mean, a thousand basis points below zero, uh, and we're going to be paying for groceries with shotgun shells and Krugerrand. Oh yeah, I mean, the thing is, is is that uh, the, one thing that people underestimate is the ability for policymakers to try to keep the uh, the institutional architecture intact to you know, go the extra mile in order to, to get things done. Just think, 2008, we went to zero lower bound. We did quantitative easing. Then negative interest rates. Now uh, you know, they're buying corporate uh, debt and potentially you know, junk bond ETFs. You, you can go further and further down the slippery slope. Uh, you never know what they're, they're going to come up with next. Yeah, look, I'm kidding clearly on the shells and Kruger end, but like, there is the risk that people start to completely freak out and panic. I mean, look, we've just come out of a crisis where there was no toilet paper on the shelves. You know, what happens to the, the, the sort of the animal spirits if you see rates that low, that far below zero? I mean, it's, a, it's, it's well, hard to even understand the cost of money. Well, obviously, this is, uh, this is what people in, in the crypto markets are all about. I mean, right. they're all about, uh, you know, escaping fiat money uh, because the specter of of taking it the extra mile is is so palpable that they'd rather be in crypto uh, as, as as this happens. Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, one of the questions that came into us, and I can't find it right now, basically said, "Hey, can we talk about what's happening in the crypto space?" Obviously, um, Bitcoin's had uh, a pretty good run here, trading at just below uh, 40,000, 39,820. Uh, interesting comments uh, today from Paul Tudor Jones talking about precisely this, inflation hedging, uh, or the reverse of this, price instability, I guess you could say, um, and talking about basically wanting an allocation that potentially is five as high as 5% Bitcoin. Yeah, you know, what's interesting, I'm, I'm looking at uh, some charts, and uh, uh, I, I talked to Raul about this on, um, on Friday, you know, this uh, Bitcoin uh, Ether uh, uh, trade 
where you know over the last seven days now bitcoin uh has outperformed as a result of what happened uh after elon musk said actually no i'm not so negative on bitcoin i mean th that's the what uh that's what precipitated this move and uh ethereum is down six percent over the last seven days whereas uh, bitcoin's up 12.26 percent i've been looking at forty thousand as sort of like a, a level where uh, it looks interesting from a technical perspective, meaning that uh, I think that's the level at which point the 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 negative the 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 drawdown that we saw from sixty four uh, it, it has now uh, been erased. You know, we we went below thirty two, almost touched thirty one twice. The second low was slightly higher than the first low in Bitcoin, and now here we are, almost to that level, the forty thousand level. If we can consolidate above that level, I think people will start to say, okay, we, we had a 40, 45, 50% drawdown, and, and now we're back in business. I think that's, that's the sort of thing that you need in order to, to move to the next level, uh, to get some momentum behind the asset class. Yeah. I'm looking at purely from a, a momentum perspective, I'm not talking in terms of intrinsic value or network effects or anything like that. Yeah. Let me throw one out to you, because uh, I think this is a really important question, particularly uh, for people who are just starting to get their heads around some of these comments, uh, topics that we're talking about uh, here today. This one comes to us from Harrison Lindsay. Uh, As a total newbie, can you quickly explain bullish for bonds? Does that refer to yields or prices? Yeah, bullish for bonds refers to uh, prices. Bullish is always about the price. And since bond yields and price move in opposite directions, that means uh, prices uh, going up and yields going down. Yeah, and the reason that prices uh, and yields move in different directions is because you're bidding in the secondary market for existing float of bonds. And so if you're if you're paying more, uh, definitionally as like an accounting identity, it pushes down the yield because you're paying more money and receiving less back uh, in interest payments uh, on a yield to maturity basis. Um, so, Ed, uh, with that said, I, I come to uh, the conclusion here. I can't believe we've blown through like 45 minutes. I thought I thought we'd gone for like 20. This is like, I just looked at the clock. It's extraordinary how fast this has gone by. So I just wanted to get some final thoughts from you, final takeaways from all of these points we've discussed here today. Yeah, so I think uh, I'm looking at one of the uh, commenters uh, on YouTube, CG, talking about the 10-year coming to 3%. Ultimately, I think that uh, there's a there's a there's a range of outcomes that are so-called Goldilocks outcomes, and then there's a Scylla and Charybdis on both sides. When we get to 1.4 percent on the 10-year, people start to panic and think that it's a harbinger of a bad economy. When we get to 2 percent and above, then people start to wonder: Is the discount rate? already, and remember that's a low number by historical standards, is it already so high that it's going to really kill off uh, the highest of high flyers in the risk on space, you know, the Teslas of the world and so forth. So I think that, you know, it's navigating that very narrow channel uh, that says that yields are not too low and they're not too high. The economy is going uh, just well enough without too much inflation that's only transitory. That's the only channel I think that works that people are comfortable with. And uh, there are a lot of risks 
on either side of those those equations. So I think that's where we are right now. And uh, part of that is looking to see how what the Fed's reaction function is. Uh, it's a wait and see right now for the next two days. But when the statement comes out on Wednesday, I think we might see a reaction if the Fed uh, actually says something of note. So it'll be interesting to see if they say anything. I don't have a view on if they will, but uh, that's the big day for the week, Wednesday. Let's see what they say. And you and I will be here to cover it. We will. And I think that we'll have Hollywood Jack Farley uh, with us as well. Fantastic. So until then, we leave you sailing between the Scylla and Charybdis. <laughs> Definitely. Ed, thanks for joining us. Thanks for watching, everyone. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.